Welcome to Pullback, the podcast that digs into the ethics behind everyday choices. I'm Kristen Pugh, and I'm here with Kyla Hewson. Hello. And uh, today we are re-releasing our seafood episode. Um, as you will have seen already with our Veganuary episode, on our off weeks, we're re-releasing some of our favorite episodes of the podcast. They're ones that we think deserve a little bit more love and attention, and Personally, I think the seafood episode is uh, maybe one of our best episodes. It was a really fun episode, and it also covered, I thought, um, some really important topics. What did you think, Kyla? No, I absolutely agree. I didn't realize, I mean, I could probably have guessed that the seafood industry was bad, but I didn't realize it was as bad as you revealed to me. And re-listening to it recently, I just had forgotten so much stuff that I was like, fuck, the oceans are in so much trouble. <laughs> so even if you did listen to this last year, like it's worth a re-listen, if only to laugh with us about monkfish and how fucking ugly they are. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing that I didn't know when we were researching this episode, and that I only found out when we were doing an episode on cultured meat later is that there are actually something like 2 trillion fish that are killed every year for human consumption. It's a much higher number than I would have thought. So that adds even more importance to the episode. Yeah. And even though that's a really important figure, I also should say in defense of the poor monkfish that I just shat on, I, I don't think we <laughs> talked about this in the episode, but I, maybe you told me this or I looked it up later. I think they're only ugly at surface level, but they're actually like normal looking under pressure because that's where they're supposed to live? No, monkfish are always ugly. You're thinking of the blobfish. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> on that note then, <laughs> please enjoy this really strong episode about something that is very important to our planet. So uh, this episode, we're looking at seafood. Uh, got any reflections on seafood before we start? <laughs> <laughs> Only that I don't want to talk about it because it's one of the very few things that still I let myself eat <laughs> and don't feel bad about. I know. I I feel like um, we kind of ruin all the wonderful things in the world. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's important. It's good stuff. But but. Uh... I just know that you did a whole bunch of research on this a few years ago, and you were like, do you want to know about all of the horrible things that go into fish farms? And I was like, no, I'm just going to eat my sandwich, salmon sandwich over here in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, all right, so why don't we get into it? I think uh, this will probably end up being a two-part episode, I think. Oh, because there's so much wrong with fish? Yeah, it's really... I. When I started doing the research for this episode, I was a little bit worried that it was going to just be a repeat of what we'd already covered with the vegetarianism episode. But but no, the seafood industry is it's fucked up in its own particular beautiful way. <laughs> no. <laughs> cool. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Can we start with my challenge then so that by the end, because if we talk about it after we talk about everything I did wrong, I'll feel really discouraged. So it's better <laughs> I go in hopeful, you know, and then you can tell me all of the stuff I did wrong. Sure. That sounds great. So what did you do for your challenge? Um, well, you're the vegetarian. So I remember <laughs> between the two of us, we decided I should be the one to do like the actual seafood, see if I could find something ethical side of the challenge. Because obviously, ultimately, the most ethical thing to do is to not eat fish. 
with yeah, that. Yeah, not to spoil the conclusion I come to, but... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even I came to that conclusion, so fair enough. I decided to challenge myself to see if I could find an ethical fish, basically. And based on the very limited reading I did... If you go to the bottom of the food chain, it's usually better. Yeah. So I went and bought some anchovies, uh, because I love anchovies. So that was good. Except they came from Spain and they didn't have like an MSC logo or anything on them. So I don't know that like they're not local and maybe they're overfished. I have no idea. So that wasn't great. So I decided that I needed to do like a second thing to make up for that first thing where I was like, this is just lazy. So I went to a farmer's market. Whoa, there are farmer's markets open during COVID? BC. (laughs) They're an essential service, actually. (laughs) Not here, they're not. (laughs) Well, it was the first one of the season, and everybody's been feeling really cooped up. So even though it was pouring rain outside, everyone was there in our, you know, social distant lineup waiting to go in. And when we did go in, normally I love markets, but I was just very aware of how much space I was taking up with my umbrella and I was stressed out because I knew other people were waiting to come into the market. And I was like, Oh, I can't dawdle because other people are like waiting in the rain. And the faster I leave, the faster someone else can come in. And it just gave me like a a degree of anxiety that I've not experienced at a farmer's (laughs) market before, but it was fine. I found a place that was like a local fishery and they had salmon and I bought a can of salmon and it had the ocean wise label on it, which it's the Vancouver Aquarium. They they kind of slap the label on that, but it's also an institution with no teeth. So I don't know if it's actually good or not, or if it's just there to make consumers feel good about themselves and it's actually doing nothing. I'm sure you'll let me know later. <laughs> but like the can was, it was canned locally and you can't buy their product in stores because it's very much like a small family-owned business. And I was like, well, this is about as good as it's probably going to get for me. (laughs) Do you know, was it like, um, was the salmon from around the area or? Yes. Yeah, yeah, it is. And it's wild caught. So, I mean, in British Columbia, we have a lot of salmon. It's like our bears love it, you know? (laughs) (laughs) I'm just like picturing uh, like a restaurant person trying to sell salmon with that pitch. Bears love it. <laughs> so, okay, do you want to go ahead and tell me everything I did wrong there or <laughs> No, I think you I think you uh, had a lot of the same instincts that people who are concerned about seafood have. And I, one of the problems we're going to talk about in this episode is that c- seafood is so opaque. You don't really know what's going on behind the like can of salmon that you're buying most of the time, even if you're trying really hard. So we'll talk a little bit first about what are all the problems with seafood? Like why should you be concerned about getting ethical seafood? And we'll talk about environmental factors and human rights and also animal welfare. And then after that, we'll try to give you some tools to do the best that you can. But I think I'm going to have like a big asterisk by this episode, which is that like, You just, it's, this is one of those industries where it's really hard to know, even if you're trying to do all the right things, you can still accidentally do badly. And to a certain extent, that's not like consumer's fault. It has to do with just the structure of the industry and uh, governments not wanting to step up, basically. Cool. This is (laughs) fun times. (laughs) (laughs) So should we dig into it? Yes, please. Let's get going. Yeah. I think, uh, Kyla, you've told me in the past that seafood is it's sort of one of the 
most common proteins that you eat? Yes. Yeah. Um, I still don't eat very much of it, but if I'm feeling like I need a protein hit that tofu just won't like do, then, <laughs> then yeah, uh, I'll, I'll reach for usually salmon. I'm a salmon girl. You're sort of not alone. There are lots of people for whom seafood is like a big part of their diets uh, in Canada and around the world. So the seafood industry is large and it's growing as more people are eating seafood every year. And actually, annual fish consumption uh, per capita has increased from just under 10 kilograms in the 1960s to just under 20 in 2012. So it's basically doubled the amount of fish that people are consuming. And actually, Canadians are slightly higher than that global average. So we eat about 23 kilograms per person per year. And I just found a, a, a fact that I liked. So Americans eat an estimated 17 billion marine creatures every year. Around the world, people are eating seafood in pretty high numbers. So they're, they're not sort of like off the charts there. So fish is a global industry partially because People all around the world eat seafood, uh, but it's also a global industry because it's really like highly traded. So seafood from one part of the world gets exported somewhere else because we sort of have global tastes in what kinds of seafood people want to get. And uh, in some cases, you can only sort of get a species in certain areas. It's very globalized. Um, and I've just, I found some information on Canadian like when Canada imports seafood products, where are we importing our seafood products from? Uh, and the top five countries are the United States, Thailand, China, Chile, and Vietnam. So that gives you kind of a taste of uh, what are the big exporting countries. But just to note that there are a whole bunch more. Surely anyone with a coastline is exporting fish, right? Like... <laughs> Yeah, or even if you're like if you have freshwater fish, you may be able to export it as well, right? So the fishing supply chain is kind of complicated. It's got four steps. So in the first step, fish and shellfish that are either living in open waters or that are raised in aquaculture um, are harvested and cultivated. Then they get packed and transported to processing facilities. And then in the third step, um, processors convert the fish to consumer products. So you mentioned having canned anchovies and salmon. Uh, so that's one kind of processing. You might also have fish that's uh, in fillets or like fish sticks or that's smoked. Lots of different ways to process it. And in some cases, processing sort of takes multiple steps. Um, while in other cases, you literally just have the fish going from the boat to like the retailer. So it really depends on what you're consuming. Most fish that people get will have been frozen at some point, And oftentimes it's frozen actually just on the boat itself. They found that that's sort of a good way. If you have to be at sea for multiple days, if it's frozen right away, it'll taste fresher because it will only have been unfrozen for a small amount of time. So yeah, after they're processed, uh, fish then go to wholesalers who receive the fish and then distribute it to retailers or to restaurants. And then that's how it ends up with consumers. Remember when restaurants were open? <laughs> <laughs> oh, now I'm sad for more than just the one reason. <laughs> 
this episode is going to focus just on the first step of the fish supply chain. So what happens when you're cultivating the fish in a farm or like catching it? We maybe will at some point do an episode on the other steps because they're also important. I just, it was already so much. (laughs) (laughs) Episodes for years. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So the first problem, which people will probably heard of, probably will have heard of to some extent is overfishing. Uh, Is that something you had encountered in your life or something that you think about a lot? Um, I mean, I definitely know that it's a thing, but I don't really know anything about it. I don't know what species are overfished. I don't know how to tell if the fish I'm buying is overfished. And I don't really know anything, I guess, is where I'm going with that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's pretty, like, common to how it is for most people who consume seafood, right? Like, I mean, there are literal sayings set up around there being plenty of fish in the sea. And (laughs) I don't know. I think you just kind of assume, even if there are some fish that are overfished, that in general, it's probably fine, right? That's at least how, like, I used to think about it. But it turns out that actually there's a huge problem and we may not have fish anymore if we are not careful. Right now, 85% of global fish stocks are overfished. That just seems unsustainable. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so overfishing basically means that there's a situation where more fish are being caught than can be replaced through natural reproduction. There are a few different causes to that, but the primary one is just that we're taking too much fish out of the ocean. There are also like ecological pressures that are being placed on some fish populations, but it's mostly just that we're, we're fishing too much. This is, this is a real problem that is going to sort of come to bear fairly soon. There is a, a journal article that was published in 2006 that predicted if fishing rates continue at the same pace, all of the world's fisheries will have collapsed by 2048. Uh, <laughs> oh, God, Kristen. <laughs> Our 50s are going to be so bleak. We're going to be out of water because of the clothing industry. Everything's going to be on fire. We won't have any fish. Coral reefs will be dead. Yeah, our 50s are going to be rough. Um, <laughs> just say that. So yeah, the problem of overfishing is actually it's so bad that some people have argued that there's a need to give the oceans their own seat at the United Nations, which practically seems like it's not going to happen. But (laughs) (laughs) but also, yeah, it's a good like way to describe like, hey, this is how bad it is, guys. Yeah, that you I think the idea is that you need the oceans need to have a vote in some way, which is kind of an interesting argument. But anyway, so the, the global ocean is like really important in supporting all life on Earth. Uh, we know it's a carbon sink, which is one thing, but also oceans cover three quarters of the planet and they contain 80% of all life. So ocean health is a really, really important element of our overall health as a species and as a planet. And although overfishing isn't the only problem happening in the oceans, we've talked about plastic, we've talked about climate change, we've talked about runoff from factory farms on land, like oceans are kind of getting hit on all sides. But overfishing is also a massive problem that's affecting ocean ecosystems. And that's true, especially at the top of the food chain. So the population of 
large predatory fish has dropped by an estimated 90% since the industrialization of fisheries in the 50s. Whoa, so in 70 years, we've lost 90% of fish that eat other fish? Yeah, and I, I don't know, I that's just a staggering figure for me. It, I, I, I just, if we've lost 90% of them, how are we still eating as much as we are? That doesn't seem like there would be enough for anyone to eat anything at this point. Well, I mean, part of the issue, and this is actually one of the books that I read for this podcast is called Bottom Feeder. And his argument is both, it's sort of a comment on the state of the fish that we eat and also an ethical claim. So the comment on the state of the fish is basically like, well, we're actually already eating our way through the food chain. Um, We've largely run our way through the like apex predators at the top of the food chain. And we're now starting to eat through the ones in the middle of the food chain. And soon we're going to be in a situation, if we don't change our behavior, where the only fish we can really afford to eat in any quantities is basically jellyfish because (laughs) they seem to be the ones that are winning out most from this. Wait, hang on. (laughs) Can we eat jellyfish? I always thought that they were like more water than anything else. Is there a way to like eat a jellyfish? Do they have flesh on them? You can eat jellyfish. I don't know how good they taste or how nutritious they are. Um, And probably some of them might be poisonous. I don't know. They look like something where like if you take it out of the water, it'll just disintegrate into nothing. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, apparently you can eat jellyfish. We just typically haven't because they're not very tasty. But (laughs) (laughs) we're eating our way through all the like the more valuable fish and soon it's going to be jellyfish for everyone. Is anyway, it's um, this guy's argument anyway. And it's it's pretty like logical, right? If you've got 90% of the apex predators gone and we're starting to see a collapse of a whole bunch of other kinds of fish, it's the ones at the bottom of the chain that survive for the most part. And they're the small fish and the jellyfish, basically. So it's important to note that like overfishing is super shitty for the environment, but it's also bad for workers. So because fish stocks have been declining, fishing vessels have to take longer and longer voyages to actually go out and find fish, meaning that workers are stuck aboard for really long periods of time. There are actually some really um, sad stories of collapsed fisheries where the government sets a quota and the like. fishermen are basically like, lol, we will never catch this amount of fish because they're not there anymore. Oh, wow. So it's people going from these massively abundant populations of fish to having to take a really long time to find just a meager amount of these same fish. And declining fish stocks also make fish processing an increasingly precarious job, which is a huge problem. Fishing and fish processing for many coastal communities were sort of like the two stable jobs, right? And with both of those kind of going, plus um, with the pollution of coastal ecosystems affecting tourism, if you're in coastal communities that rely on those three things, you're kind of getting hit in a whole bunch of different ways at the same time. I don't know if you'd ever, I mean, we were in Newfoundland last year, Kyla, and I, I don't know if you remembered sort of like the place of cod and the culture there. Nope. <laughs> I was too high. We went straight to a dispensary. <laughs> Yeah, um, I mean, one of the things that we didn't do that um, is like a cultural thing is getting screeched in, which is traditionally done on a cod. 
you like take screech and you kiss a fish. That's <laughs> the tradition. Newfoundland's fun. <laughs> I said that sarcastically, but they actually are way more fun than every other province. Newfoundland was lit. I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So cod has been super essential and the Grand Banks cod fishery was like maybe the most plentiful fishery in the entire world. There are stories of like explorers coming to Newfoundland and like just massive amounts of fish like diving out of the water and the um, explorers just being totally overwhelmed by how much fish there was. And yet now there's basically no cod in Newfoundland um, in the Grand Banks fishery um, because there was a collapse in the early 1990s. That had a huge impact on the local population. It put between 40,000 and 50,000 people out of work when that fishery collapsed. I mean, if you take that and then expand it out to the rest of the world, uh, fishing is actually central to the livelihood and food security of about 200 million people. So we're talking about something that's important for the environment, but where people also have a huge steak. And of course, the the seafood themselves, you know, the fish themselves. Yeah, but I mean, if anyone's argument was, I don't care about fish, they're basically the bugs of the sea, which is what I have been heard saying before. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's not just the animal cruelty side of things. It's It's everything. Yeah. Overfishing is partially a governance problem, which is the most boring kind of problem, but... It- and yet also the most common (laughs) yes so a huge source of um where overfishing is coming from is something called illegal unregulated and unreported fishing or iuu fishing it's really difficult to tackle these kinds of fishing because basically most of the ocean is international waters right and so it's basically anybody can move freely through international waters and it's a commons. So it's really hard to regulate it. You can't set quotas on it in the same way that governments do. Um, And so for that reason, people often sort of refer to overfishing as a case of the tragedy of the commons, right? Because if you're an individual fisherman, um, you might have an incentive to overfish because you want to bring back more money when you come back to shore. Even if collectively, everybody, including you, has an incentive to see that there's responsible stewardship over that, like, fishery. I mean, people are notorious for seeing the immediate problem and not the problem ahead. Like, oh, that's a problem for future me. (laughs) Yeah. And, like, governments, in theory, can do something by setting quotas, which they do, but not very well. Um, So in domestic waters, it's a little bit of an easier situation to handle. But if you're trying to get a handle on that on international waters, you have to come up with an agreement that enough countries can sign on to for it to become international law. And that can be really tricky to achieve. So that's kind of the argument for giving the oceans a UN seat. But yeah, it's illegal, unregulated and unreported fishing accounts basically for 30% of all fishing activity worldwide. So it is a sizable portion of the fishing that occurs. Yeah, that's huge. And um, part of the like the connection with that is because so much of the fishing that happens is 
unregulated, illegal, or unreported, you then create a situation where you can have a lot of fraud that happens. And so seafood fraud is the next thing that I want to talk about. How confident do you feel when you get fish that you're getting what you're <laughs> what you want? <laughs> <laughs> well, seafood fraud is a thing I do know is a, is is a problem. Like that is one where I'm like I recognize that. So, not super confident, but mostly I eat salmon and I feel like there's not a lot of other things that can masquerade as salmon. So, oh, oh no. <laughs> Oh no, I felt really confident before. <laughs> if I was buying a white fish, then I was like, who knows what this is? But salmon. They sometimes artificially color it. <laughs> what? Really? But salmon yeah. has a flavor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow, they color it? That's that's wild. <laughs> that's, it seems like more work. Or farms, you don't know because that's another instance of seafood fraud. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The point is that. Um, a lot of the seafood that people are getting, it's not really what it's being labeled as. So there was a recent investigation that was done in Montreal that found that more than half of the samples they looked at were mislabeled. More than half? Yeah. Wow. So for 61%, they were mislabeled in some ways. So it might have been that they were like, they said it was Atlantic salmon, but it was really Pacific salmon, or they said it was wild caught, but it was really farmed. And then a full 34% were actually just totally different species than they were advertised as being. Holy shit. So, well, and yeah. in Montreal, like that's that's Canada, and I would expect better from Canada. So it just means that everywhere is probably super fucked. It's true, yeah. So they estimate that about 30% of seafood products are mislabeled globally. And it's hard to know whether that's an accurate representation, too, because there's so much um, lack of transparency happening globally. So it may actually be higher than that. So why is it so high? Um, as fish markets have globalized, uh, so too have the supply chains for fish. Um, and the result has been a sort of notoriously opaque system where weak governance um, allows for seafood fraud to just sort of go wild. And I mean, another important aspect of it is that consumers just don't really know much about seafood. And seafood's such a wide category of animals that, you know, in American supermarkets, there are something like 350 different species that are sold as seafood. So like, it's unreasonable to expect consumers to have memorized all of those. Yeah, I mean, I can't tell the difference between fish at all. So yeah. <laughs> I thought I recognized salmon, but apparently not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so seafood fraud's pretty easy. Um, I'm going to go through a couple of the common ones. Uh, but before I do that, I want you to just Google monkfish for me. Okay. <laughs> uh, we don't eat this monster, do we? <laughs> <laughs> Can you describe what you're seeing? Um, uh <laughs> <laughs> this might be the ugliest fish I've ever seen. <laughs> this looks like it's okay. First of all, it's okay. How do I describe this? It looks like a thumb that is 50% mouth. <laughs> like, like, like if a, like if a, like if a stingray had a baby with a nightmare and it just came out as just this wrinkly gray tooth machine. What is this thing? <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's a monkfish. 
Another important thing to mention about monkfish is uh, it's it got like a little antenna with like flesh. That's how it hunts. Oh. Just to make it even more gruesome. Oh, yeah. I don't I know if that. all the pictures have it, but yeah. Yes. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. So they basically like the little flesh like hangs um, from this antenna and it's supposed to attract smaller fish that are going to try to eat it. And then it like snaps them up. Oh, so. that's like the fish in, in Finding Nemo. You remember that one? <laughs> is that is that a monkfish? No. It's the one where they like, it's dark and the thing has a light on its head and... Oh, no, that's an anglerfish. Why do you know so much but... about fish? <laughs> <laughs> For this episode, Kyle. Oh, yeah. You know, she, she learned all 350 species of fish. I, I definitely did not, but I did, uh, I did research some of them because... Some of them are pretty gnarly. Did you did you just look up the ugliest fish? You, ugh, I just googled pictures of anglerfish, and they're even scarier than they were in Finding Nemo. <laughs> <laughs> they genuinely look exactly like that cartoon. I thought they'd exaggerated the look of it because, like, it was a cartoon. But this doesn't look like a thing that should be real. <laughs> yeah, I think anglerfish exist like at really deep depths. But anyway, I, as far as I know, we don't eat anglerfish, but maybe we do. Uh, monkfish, though, are oftentimes passed off as lobster. So it was one of the reasons I gave it to you. Oh. They, don't, they don't look at all like lobster, but apparently they taste somewhat similar. What is the rule? Like the uglier the fish, the tastier it is. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> Just body shaming all the fish. Pilot. You're right. I'm sorry. <laughs> Beauty is subjective and I should take a step back on this one. <laughs> No, but like monkfish at first was known as like um, like a food that you really didn't want to eat. And it was incredibly cheap to buy because basically, why would you buy it? It look, Just looking at it is poisoning me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But the weird thing is now it's actually overfished um, and it's had like a huge price increase because it's been used as like a lobster substitute and it's become fairly popular. Actually, Julia Child popularized uh, the monkfish, so you can blame her for the fact that you're looking at that image. Wait, what? What? How? <laughs> she just decided that she's like, monkfish, they're going to be a thing. And then she like cooked them and then suddenly they were a thing. You can't afford lobster like I can, but you can't afford this cheap alternative. Basically. Oh, yeah. boy. Yeah, um, but now monkfish are not cheap anymore, and that's because they're being overfished, because that's what humans do, I guess. So yeah, some other common frauds. In Canada, if you're buying cod, it's often actually haddock. Red snapper is oftentimes either red sea bream or tilapia. Grouper, which I don't really know what this is, but apparently like in the south, it's a popular fish you put on like sandwiches. It's often mislabeled, um, and it's actually what you're buying is catfish, which you're being literally catfished. (laughs) 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 Yeah, and the last one is uh, quite often, if you're buying something that's labeled as wild caught, it can actually be farmed fish. So even if you're trying to be really good, um, you can get fucked. How did they get away with that? That is so slimy. I mean, basically, it's just unregulated. So actually, fish products are less regulated than even like land-based animals. So the shit that goes on in the seafood industry in a lot of cases would not get a pass if it was like cows or chickens or pigs. Well, I mean, that's because land-based animals 
exist inside of governments and fish do not. So I guess, how are you supposed to control that? Yeah, I think it's also because, um, I mean, factory farming is a nightmare. So I'm not going to say that like um, land animals have it good. But I think people <laughs> do off- often think of fish as like a thing that's so dissimilar from themselves that they don't really care what happens to them. So, I mean, all you have to do is look up the picture of a monkfish to recognize <laughs> why people feel that way. <laughs> yeah. Also, it's like um, fishing is kind of more like hunting for the most part than it is like farming, although that's changing really quickly. So to a certain extent, maybe that's partly why it hasn't been regulated as much. I don't know. Uh, But yeah, there's a lot of fraud and it's partially because the stuff that's caught is coming from international waters and being unreported and um, brought in illegally. And it's partly because across the supply chain, you don't have traceability, um, which basically means that like, if you're buying fish from a supermarket, you don't know like what fishery it was from or where it was processed or anything like that. So that really limits the ability of consumers to actually know what really is the fish that they're buying and was it sustainably fished? Is it actually the species I wanted to purchase? Yeah, (laughs) yikes. Basic questions. So one partial solution to this is um, is buying fish that's got a sustainability label that has a traceability standard. So that makes you makes whatever fisheries certified actually do like a chain of custody so that they can see what happened at every step of the supply chain. Um, so if you have a, like a, a a sustainability label that is a good one that's on the fish that you're buying. You have some sense that what you're buying is actually what you think you're buying, but seafood mislabeling does still happen occasionally under the scheme. It's just a lot less common. That's one solution, but it does have its limits. So ultimately what's probably going to be needed is government regulations and then um, also like some sort of international agreement. So we will see if the world gets less fucked up than it is. Um, Maybe that'll happen. I mean, I feel like we're going to have to literally run out of fish before any of that happens, but maybe I'm just a pessimist. Which might happen, so great. Jellyfish for everyone. (laughs) (laughs) So the next thing I want to talk about is the environmental effects of fishing. In addition to overfishing, sustainability also is about the broader environmental impact of fishing processes. So, for example, if gear gets lost in the fishing process or if fishing, like, destroys different parts of the marine environment, for example, if you're dynamiting a fish, which is a thing, that can cause sort of more widespread damage than just overfishing that one specific species. Yeah, because then you're killing everything that happens to be nearby, right? Like... Yeah, and possibly like some fishing methods just completely fuck up coral irreparably. So stuff like that. So commercial fishing gear is becoming a lot more efficient from one perspective, but also a lot less efficient from another perspective. It's more efficient in the sense that these modern fishing boats with all of their devices are really great at finding and catching the fish that they want to catch, and they can catch a pretty good amount of them. The downside is that they're doing a lot of damage to the environment in a lot of cases, and also that they catch a lot of unwanted species in the process, and those species end up as something called bycatch, 
And bycatch basically is just the fish that the fisherman was not going for that then gets tossed overboard, either dead or dying. And usually they don't survive that process. That's pretty traumatic. I can't imagine. (laughs) Yeah. So bycatch can, it can vary a lot depending on how fishing is done. So some fishing methods, like if you're harpooning a fish, no bycatch because you're just harpooning the fish you meant to harpoon. It's basically not a thing with that method. Uh, But there are other methods where bycatch can be a huge problem. So for example, in the case of shrimp trawling, so I'll talk about what trawling is a little bit more. um, But in that specific example, the bycatch ratio is 14 to one. So for every one thing that you want to catch, there's like 14 other things that you're killing. It's not at all sustainable in addition to like the disregard for life that it involves. So I I mentioned dynamite already, which I think everyone just instinctively knows is like not probably a good way to catch fish. (laughs) (laughs) It's not good for the environment. But some of the other really bad ways to, to fish includes dredging, bottom trawls, and drift nets. What bottom trolling does is it basically turns the bottom of the sea into something that looks either like a like a parking lot or like a plowed field. It basically like it drags a net along the bottom of the ocean and it like will bulldoze over coral reefs and destroy any other kinds of seabed um, ecosystems that are happening there. It also stirs up a lot of sediment that can make the area actually unlivable for some species. So for that reason, some people have called bottom trawling the marine equivalent of clear-cutting a rainforest. Um, So bottom trawling is among the worst methods, and it's sort of notorious because it does that. But um, none of those methods that I mentioned above are good. And uh, also, there are a whole bunch of other fishing methods that also suck. Just like (laughs) needlessly destructive when we live in a world with technology, right? Like there must be better ways by now. Yeah, and it's because the only imperative that fishers need to abide by is getting as much fish as they can. They're not being made responsible for protecting the environment. They're not being made responsible for paying for the the bycatch or whatever. Um, So the bottom line is get as much fish as you can, and it doesn't really matter how harmful it is. There is a little bit of hope um, for consumers to sort of change practices. And one of those is uh, something called dolphin safe. Um, have you ever heard about, you know, dolphins getting hurt by fishing of any kind? Yeah, I remember it was a big thing a few years ago. I remember when I was a kid, something about like, they got mixed in with salmon. Like, did we accidentally eat them? Or did they wind up in the tuna cans? Or, or what happened? I don't know. Definitely. Um, so they, we didn't end up eating them, but basically. <laughs> that's, what I, yeah. that's what I thought when I was a kid, because it was such a big deal. I was like, are we eating dolphin? That's what I, like you were talking about, <laughs> um, like faux fish, like, oh, this is tuna when secretly it's dolphin. That's what I've always kind of thought. <laughs> yeah, as far as I know, we weren't actually eating dolphin, oh, well, but dolphins uh, were slash possibly still are, I'm not sure. Um being sort of like brutally drowned in something called purse seine nets. Um, so I don't know if you've ever had like a, a change purse where you like pull a drawstring and it 
closes. Yeah. Purse stain nets, as far as I understand, they're basically like that. They like encircle a school of fish and then um, suddenly they're trapped. What was happening um, is that dolphins were getting drowned in these nets. And uh, there's actually a biologist that filmed it happening. And the footage of these dolphins just like shrieking in pain as nylon nets tore away their fins. Ugh. It really affected people. Yeah, no kidding. Like I have not seen that footage <laughs> and I'm affected. Yeah. So it it made a huge change almost overnight. People saw the footage and they associated it with tuna fishing. And so they decided they weren't going to buy tuna anymore. That was maybe the first seafood consumer movement that was actually successful in some sense. It questionable how successful it was because there's actually like a dolphin safe label that then was the subject of a trade dispute. Um, <laughs> anyway, <Sure. laughs> it was the whole thing, but, <laughs> but yeah, there were some efforts to make sure that if you're fishing for tuna, you're doing it in a way that isn't killing dolphins. So there is some hope that if consumers can get the right information, they can push the industry to change. So feel empowered that you can use this information to, Make a difference? I don't know. People only care about dolphins. <laughs> no one's going to be empowered to change anything on behalf of that ugly ass monkfish. <laughs> yeah, monkfish might be screwed. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know. Like, lobsters are cute, I think. Uh, in their, like, little buggy way. <laughs> Just me? Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. The broader point of this section being that Fishing has a lot of environmental impacts beyond just overfishing a particular species and that the method that's being used to fish makes a huge difference in determining how much environmental harm is done. That's really good news because it means that we can ask fishers to use less harmful methods. But the problem is without like government regulation and without the push of consumers and without more transparency so that we can do those things. Fishers really have no reason to pick those less efficient but more environmentally friendly methods. So, boo hiss. Uh, do you want to talk about aquaculture for a bit? <sighs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, yeah, we've talked about overfishing and it's a problem. So, so you'd think farming would be better, right? Right? Yeah, you'd think, hey, you know, here's a species that's almost extinct. Or, you know, that's in danger of that happening. What if we just raise them all in a controlled environment like we do with cows? There are lots of cows around. They're not going extinct anytime soon. And that's basically the idea behind fish farming. And uh, because it's set up in a similar way to factory farms, it has a lot of the same ethical harms. So I'll talk about what aquaculture looks like. But if you're thinking like, Oh, yeah, I remember like these environmental and like animal welfare harms. They'll be pretty familiar to you from factory farms. But um, aquaculture is actually like a hugely growing part of the way that we ingest seafood. So it's really important to talk about. So in 1970, uh, aquaculture contributed about 3% of the world's seafood. So like barely anything. Today, it's more than 50%. So wow. Yeah, it's most of what we're consuming is farmed fish, not wild fish. That's huge. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and this is just a fun fact that I found. The uh, weight of farmed fish exceeds the weight of beef that's produced every year. Whoa! Cows are so big. That's so many fish. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I'm laughing. That's so sad. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. So I found a description of fish farms that I thought was pretty useful because for me anyway, it was really hard to conceptualize what they might be like. Yeah. I don't know if that's, yeah. So here we go. In the fjords and coastal inlets along the coast of Norway, Britain, Iceland, Chile, China, Japan, Canada, the United States, and many other countries, cages or nets that may be more than 200 feet long and 40 feet deep have been lowered into the sea and secured to platforms from which workers feed the fish. With salmon, 50,000 fish may be confined to each sea cage and a stocking density that is equivalent to putting each 30-inch salmon into a bathtub of water. Oh. So that's not a lot of space for salmon to swim around in, and it's a lot less than they're used to having. Yeah. And that's not unique to, to salmon. Um, most fish farming operations involve fish being in really cramped quarters. Which is like, it's obviously a problem from like a cruelty perspective, and we'll talk about that a little bit more later. Um, but there are also a bunch of environmental harms that are associated with fish farming that um, I wanted to talk about now, if that's okay. Great, what a treat. <laughs> <laughs> Farmed fish um, require a lot of fish feed, which it might not seem like a problem, but when you think that like, a lot of the fish that are overfished are carnivorous fish. And so a lot of the fish that are farmed as a result are carnivorous fish because they're the fish people want to eat, but that we can't get through normal means. So you've suddenly got to feed all these carnivorous fish other fish. So where <sighs> yeah. do you get the other fish? Of course. You overfish the other fish. Uh, everything is broken. I know. Yeah. So it's like, um, even though fish farming is presented as the solution to overfishing, it's actually causing a greater problem to overfishing. So fuck. <laughs> so the second problem is that fish farming for that same reason is not very carbon efficient. So whereas, um, you know, a wild salmon is going to go out and just swim and catch its own food. Um, so its carbon budget's pretty low. Fish farmers actually need to go out and get fish meal uh, using fossil fuel powered boats. And that is not carbon neutral. Yeah, of course. Or anywhere close to it. So fish farming, not great for climate change. Fish farming can also cause harm to the wider environment through farm waste, chemicals, disease and parasites. <laughs> I don't know if you remember uh, our sugar, or I guess it was the food episode that we released as a bonus <laughs> with, with Lex, Lex, where she was talking about sea, sea lice. lice. Yeah, and she was like, <laughs> we were like, fish don't have hair. How do they have lice? And she's like, oh, yeah, it just eats the flesh off the fish. And I was like, what? Uh... <laughs> yeah, so that's like fundamentally a problem of fish farming. Sea lice and also like other diseases and parasites end up in these farmed fish a lot. Yeah, you can't social distance if you're all crammed <laughs> together in a tiny space. That's very true. Very relevant uh, <laughs> cultural <laughs> drop in there. <laughs> 
in addition to like sea lice and other things like that, there's also high concentrations of like fish, fish feces and like food waste that end up getting discharged into the water that's around the sea cages. Oh, and in like way higher concentrations than the ocean can probably handle. Yeah, it's like not great. <laughs> it's a lot of fish poop. Yeah, the World Wildlife Fund actually, they did a calculation of the fish feces discharged um, from salmon farms in Scotland. And they found that it produced the same amount of waste as 9 million people. That's more than the population of Scotland. (laughs) (laughs) There's more poop coming out of Scotland from fish than from people. That's cool. (laughs) Yeah, it's super fucked. The pollution from fish farming can also affect the people that inhabit coastal areas. You know, as you can imagine, if there's fish shit everywhere. For example, in 1996, a group of activists in India actually won a class action lawsuit against shrimp farms. um, And that was on the basis that these farms had basically like fucked up the livelihoods of these coastal communities. So it is a real concern, again, not only for the planet and animals and the environment, but also for people who are connected to those ecosystems. Yeah, of course. Also, similar to factory farming on land, uh, because fish are so crammed into these feedlots, fish actually need to be given antibiotics. Um, And those also leach into the water and cause environmental problems. Another problem with uh, fish farms that doesn't really happen on land as much um, is that, you know, sometimes uh, a predator will break into the net of a fish farm Or sometimes a storm will cause a hole and then you get like a bunch of the farmed fish escaping. I mean, that sounds dope. That sounds like, (laughs) get out of there, guys, run for it. Yeah, I'm like on the side of the fish on this, but they also kind of fuck up the ecosystems around them. Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah. So there's an estimate that as many as half a million farmed salmon escape every year. And what happens when they escape is that they can actually infect wild fish with disease and parasites. So, like, bring back our old friend sea lice. Uh, Young wild salmon uh, now have sea lice in rates that are 73% higher than previously. Whoa. And sea lice sound awful. So, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't want them. <laughs> Pullback against sea lice. <laughs> Controversial. An anti sea lice podcast. So, some kinds of aquaculture operations are better than others. Um, in fact, oyster and mussel farming seem to be relatively benign. So, if you're looking at getting either of those farms, you probably don't have too many issues with it. And in fact, like because oysters and mussels filter things like algae out of the water, they basically clean the water. So there's an argument to be made for actually like, you should have a bunch of oyster and mussel farms because they would potentially clean up really polluted water areas. But they seem to be like the exception to the rule that mostly fish farming is really shitty for the environment. That was the, those were the only examples of good fish farms that I could find. For the most part, they kind of They just wreck things. Sure. (laughs) Yeah. So I think at this point we should maybe wind down and go to our and switch to part two. 
So this is the second half of our two-parter about seafood. I'm still kind of tired from the last one. It was so sad. <laughs> yeah,、uh, seafood not as fun as it sounds. <laughs> How are you feeling? Oh, I'm feeling good. Yeah.、Um, I mean, I tried to do. I I don't know whether we want to talk about my challenge an hour later, but、um, I was trying <laughs> to do part of it today, and、uh, I like set off the fire alarm. So you know. <laughs> What? What happened? Okay, no. Now you have to tell me. <laughs> okay, yeah. So、uh, my challenge for this week, because I'm already vegetarian, it seemed counterproductive to、um, have me eat seafood for this challenge. I really didn't want to <laughs> do is, that. Which is which is why I <laughs> fell on the sword on that. I fell on that one. <laughs> so yeah, what I tried to do instead was to make some like popular seafood dishes as vegan alternatives. And I had varying degrees of success with that. <laughs> so the one that resulted in the fire alarm—I didn't set anything actually on fire, but I'm not really used to <laughs> to frying things like in like deep fried oil. Like usually, my position is I'm just going to let a restaurant do that because they'll do it better, and also my whole apartment won't smell like oil afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> but times being what they are, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You decided to go for it. Yeah, so I tried to do this one recipe that was、um, is basically supposed to be fried fish,、um, fried battered fish, but instead it used artichokes. The secret ingredient to all fish alternative recipes, by the way, seems to be seaweed. You just put seaweed in it, and then it tastes like the sea. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I had attempted to do that, and like most of the recipe came out well, but then. After I had taken all of the artichoke pieces out, the like oil, they were like little burnt bits at the bottom because it hadn't quite been enough oil for it to float. And even though I had the heat off, it like continued to burn. And then suddenly my apartment was smoky, and I wasn't even noticing because I was like eating the food.、Um, and then the fire alarm goes off, and I'm like in this mad scramble to like. Uh, move my plants so I can get my window open, and then like had a towel like waving in the air <laughs> to try to get the fire alarm to turn off, and then I like I brought the oil into my bathtub and put like my the pot on top of uh, like uh, you know one of those things that prevents it from melting things,、mm-hmm. and it just sat in there when I had the fan on, and eventually it all worked out, but. <laughs> It、sounds like an adventure. <laughs> yeah, so that I would classify as the biggest catastrophe of the three. So, <laughs> did it taste okay?、Uh, it was okay, but it tasted more like fried artichokes than it did fried fish. So, I'll give myself like a C plus on that one. I think <laughs> <laughs> the other two were, I think, much better. Um, so one of them was、uh, I tried to do fried calamari with、uh, oyster mushrooms, and that turned out really, really good. It tasted almost identical to my memory of the original. Anyway, the only thing is like taking a knife and like cutting oyster mushrooms into rings is like a fucking process. I'll tell you, <laughs> took a really long time. Yeah, I saw your pictures on Instagram, and I was like, well, that looks like more work than it's worth. Yeah. <laughs> The the recipe recommends、uh, using like a small circular cookie cutter,、uh, which probably saves a lot of time. But I didn't have one, so. And then the last one I did was bagels and locks with like carrots instead of、uh, salmon. And you made the bagels from scratch. I did. I made everything from scratch, actually. Although cream cheese is like super easy; just throw cashews in a blender. But yeah, the bagels took a long time, and 
They're sort of interesting. Like I didn't realize that for like New York style bagels, maybe all bagels, I don't know. You boil them first. And I don't know, it was just weird. Uh, <laughs> I know. And then you texted me at like 1am your time. And you're like, I just made bagels. And I'm like, what time is it right now where you are? <laughs> <laughs> the things I do for this podcast. Kind of like <laughs> Amazing. I ate like, I ate the bagel locks for three consecutive meals yesterday, though, so... <laughs> well, that's the thing about, like, when you make stuff from scratch and you live alone, is like, well, I guess I'm eating this for the next four days straight. Yep. <laughs> so, yeah, that was my experience. I would say the fried fish was not as successful, although I've heard of other recipes where you use, like, tofu or whatever, or jackfruit, and that would probably work better than the artichokes. Jackfruit has, like, a really meaty texture to it that would probably make it really good if you just made it super salty. It's like, oh yeah, this is basically fish. Yeah, I think so too. So I, I guess my conclusion is like, yeah, that'll do ya, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Great. We can, that's our episode, folks. We, we solved it. <laughs> but I mean, I don't know. It's been so long since I've eaten fish that like, I'm maybe, an, it's the same thing with like Beyond Burgers or whatever. Like, yeah, it tastes to me like beef, but I don't know, you'd have to, Try it out on somebody that eats beef more regularly, I think, to really tell. Same with these, I guess. All right. Do you want to get into the research for this one? Yes. What are we talking about on this episode? Please, please let me know and that, say that it's nicer. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, it, it, part of it's bleaker and then it gets nicer again. So Okay. So we just have to power through. Got it. Power through. Yeah. So the first topic is going to be looking at animal welfare a little bit. And uh, last episode, we talked about the environmental harms of fish farming. I'll talk about some of the harms of that, as well as wild catch, um, what happens when you're actually catching the fish. Then after that, I've got a section on human rights, which is actually a huge issue in fishing. And then after that, we kind of get to the more fun solutions side. So that'll be a lot lighter. Yay! <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I feel like we kind of... Oh, man, didn't we already cover... <laughs> Animal cruelty, like, kind of just goes hand in hand, like, murdering all these side species, just trying to catch that one, like, what did you say? It was like 14 fish die for every fish caught in one country or something like that. And it's like, well, that just falls under animal cruelty, surely. Yeah. So there's more? There's more, sorry. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> yeah. So do you want to dig into that and get it out of the way? Yes, please. Let's start with that. <laughs> I think if people will remember our vegetarianism episode, there are kind of two issues when you look at animal welfare and um, and fish. So the first one is a question of whether it's ever okay to eat a living being that feels pain. The second is, given how we catch and farm fish, is it justified on welfare grounds? Because we talked about the first bit in a lot of detail in vegetarianism, I think we'll just skip that. And people can like go back to that episode if they're curious about those arguments. Um, and we'll just focus really on the the welfare arguments. Yeah, well, I mean, you kind of cover the whole thing there. Like, is it moral to eat something that feels pain? And I mean, I feel like even if you choose to do it, on some level, you must recognize that not really. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's how I feel. I'm like, yeah, this is something immoral that I'm doing, but I'm gonna do it anyways, because I'm tired and I need that protein kick that I just can't get from tofu. I don't know. That's not an excuse. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I'll just also quickly say that um, seafood 
we talked about this last uh, um, on the last half of the episode, but it encapsulates a really wide variety of animals, and they have very different capacities and levels of intelligence. So some fish, like octopus, are really, really intelligent, and most seafood has been demonstrated uh, to be sort of like they're social creatures. They have demonstrated pain responses. So there's this. I think there's this instinct that like seafood or fish are are sort of less sentient than land animals. And that's not true. The one exception to this might be bivalves. So bivalves are basically like they're a grouping of marine and freshwater mollusks. And um, basically the things that are in like the two shells that open and close. If, if it's <laughs> one of those, it's a bivalve. Oh, because it's a, it's a, wait, because is, is a valve, is it when it opens and closes? <laughs> I did not look up the etymology of bivalves for my research, and I don't feel bad about it. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I'm asking all the important questions over here. Carry on. No, I would be curious. I just don't know. Uh, so, yeah, uh, some common bivalves you might have eaten before are oysters, clams, mussels, and scallops. So... There's very little evidence to suggest that there's any sort of consciousness in bivalves. And the fact that they don't move is suggestive that like it would have been not evolutionarily valuable for them to develop a pain response. So they probably don't feel pain is the best idea that we have so far. So if you're eating bivalves um, on animal cruelty grounds, you probably like that's probably okay. I mean, it comes down to everybody's own personal judgment, but I don't personally see any um, any moral harm to eating bivalves, given that we don't really think they have most of the characteristics we care about in eat, like animal cruelty. Fair enough, yeah. So yeah, um, but for all the other seafood, um, there's sort of this idea that maybe wild-caught fish is more ethically okay because really they're living a normal life for their species until the moment that they're killed or the moments where they're sort of in the process of being killed. And that's like a really strong point to a certain extent, but I think it's also balanced against the fact that um, the death of a wild caught fish is pretty horrific. So I'm going to talk about it a little bit. So there's essentially no such thing as humane slaughter for wild caught fish. Um, so one example is like um, if you think about longline fishing, which is essentially just like a more um, fancy version of if you had like a fishing pole. It's like much more intense than that, but more or less like there's a, a long line that goes into the water and fish are hooked and then they get brought into the boat. So um, for that kind of fishing, fish are essentially hooked and they spend hours trying to escape. Um, and then after many hours, they're hauled on board, and then they die either by being clubbed to death um, or they have their gills cut out and they sort of bleed to death. Wow, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah. Although, have you ever been fishing? No. My dad used to take me when we were kids. It was an activity I always hated, but that I was really good at for some reason. <laughs> so, like, my dad and my brother and I, I remember this one time. It's like a really traumatic event from my childhood, but we were fishing on this little you know, rowboat. And I kept catching fish and they weren't catching anything, which was annoying for all of us, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> and 
My dad had forgotten his club, so whenever I caught a fish, he just beat it to death on the side of the boat. It was, like, just, oh. And then there was one that he thought was dead, and then a few minutes later, we saw it, like, wriggling around under the seat. And I was like, Dad, that one's not dead yet, and he had to beat it again. And, uh, yeah, maybe I should talk to a therapist about that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it sounds really brutal. But I think it highlights this, um, this problem when it comes to fish, that really any way that we conventionally go about fishing is a really horrific death. And it's the kind of death that actually, if you apply the rules of factory farming on land, it wouldn't be allowed, it would be considered inhumane. So given that, it's, I mean, it's, it's just kind of fucked up, I think. I've got another quote about trawling. We talked about that last time. That's the like the nets that go along the bottom of the water. Yeah, that's the one where they they bulldoze a rainforest to catch a couple birds. Was what the uh, analogy was. Yeah, basically. Yeah. So um, here, I'll just I'll take that quote on on what a death is like for a fish from trawling. So in trawlers, hundreds of different species are crushed together, gashed on corals, bashed on rocks for hours, and then hauled from the water, causing painful decompression. The decompression sometimes causes the animal's eyes to pop out or their internal organs to come out of their mouths. Oh, <laughs> yeah. On long lines, too, the deaths that animals face are generally slow. Some are simply held there and die only when they're removed from the lines. Some die from the injury caused by the hooks in their mouths or by trying to get away. Some are unable to escape attack by predators. No fish gets a good death, not a single one. You never have to wonder if the fish on your plate had to suffer. It did. Um, and yeah, then also just a quick reminder that bycatch is always a thing, or almost always a thing when it comes to the fish that you're eating. So it's not just that. So basically, instead of going to like a slaughterhouse and being killed humanely, they die from trauma and just whatever form that happens to end in like whether it's their eyeballs popping out of their heads or being beaten against the bottom of their rainforest being torn apart oh god yeah but i think there there is like i don't know i was listening to another podcast i think it was the wall street journal's future of everything which i don't know they're not paying us but everyone should go listen to it it's great (laughs) i think they had an episode on like fishing and how there is like a humane way to kill fish it's just that nobody's doing it because there's no regulation but i listened to it like two years ago so i don't know if that's true yeah all the evidence that i was able to find was that the deaths are pretty painful it may be the case that there is technology that's been developed but not like conventionally applied it can't be good for like the meat right like an animal that dies in distress is going to have worse meat i think that's what the episode that i was listening to if i can find it i'll share it on twitter but they were talking about how if you killed the the fish more humanely it would taste better and last for longer as well yeah but this is an industry where they're not even selling you the species that's advertised (laughs) (laughs) god damn you're right all right (laughs) no i hear you though and i think um one of the things that i sort of found from reading on this is um People that are committed to still eating fish but want to do it ethically think that if we start to treat fish as like a food that we really honor and eat rarely, then you can start to infuse values like humane killing because, I mean, the reason they don't do it, if I mean, I'm not sure about the technology suggested, but it wouldn't surprise me, is just that this way is cheaper, you know? It's cheaper and easier. And if you need to sell seafood for cheap, then why on earth would you would you 
slow down the efficiency of your boats, right? Whereas like if consumers are willing to pay more and only have fish every once in a while, um, then if it becomes sort of like a, a delicacy, then it could be done more humanely. Well, I just saw an article come in today that was showing that because we're all in lockdown, Americans are eating way more fish than usual. It's like one of the few industries that's actually booming right now. So <laughs> cool. <laughs> just a fun little fact. <laughs> I mean, the good thing about wild caught fish, though, is that and I think this is really significant that they do live most of their lives just being fishies in their normal fishy and other seafood like uh, lives. If we go to fish farming, you get the harms of factory farming plus the horrific death of wild-caught fish. It's really the worst of both worlds, unless you're talking about bivalves. They're basically plants. <laughs> Which can't feel anything. But yeah, you were saying yeah, um, in the last episode, salmon living in like extremely close quarters. like It's like chicken farm or whatever. They're living like in a bathtub, and they're like huge. They're huge fish. Salmon are big. Yeah, so fa fish farming operations, they're just like um, factory farming on land. They're all really crammed together, as you point out. There are also other similar problems in terms of like, there's a high death rate from illness because they're all crammed together. Pandemic has really taught us how close quarters fuels the transmission of diseases. So you can think about that <laughs> and think about factory fishing. There's also... Um, problems with like parasitic infestations like sea lice and also abrasion. So like the, the fish that are there, they're not healthy, they're not happy. Uh, there was a study that I found that had documented that salmon bred and raised at fish factory farms are forced to grow at such an accelerate and at such an accelerated rate that over 50% of them are going deaf. It, I mean, it's similar to factory farming on land. It, there's like genetic modification that happens to speed up production because they're seen as like production units, not as animals, right? Oh, yeah. I, I found this other sad study um, that found a significant proportion of farmed salmon suffer from severe depression. <gasps> what? How can they know that? Well, the fish are referred to as dropouts because they float lifelessly in the dirty tanks that they reside in. Oh, man. Yeah, that broke my heart when I read that. Oh, it's like when you find out that cows mourn their dead or whatever. Like, it just makes you want to lie down. And then the death isn't great either. So um, farmed fish are typically starved for seven to ten days before slaughter. Why? I, I think it's like they want the contents of the stomach to be empty. I think there's another reason, but I don't remember. But yeah, reasons. And <laughs> as you can imagine, like an animal that's used to eating regularly does not enjoy being starved for that amount of time. Fuck. And yeah, because there generally aren't rules for the humane slaughter of fish, uh, they're killed in super brutal ways. So sometimes they're actually just allowed to suffocate on land, which is the simplest way to kill a fish, I guess. Uh, but it takes like 15 minutes for that to happen. Oh. Sometimes. So yeah. Yeah. They're sometimes bashed in the head with a wooden bat. And if that doesn't kill them, which it often doesn't, uh, they can be cut open while they're fully conscious. Um, and again, that's a thing that there's at least some regulations around that kind of thing for land factory farming. So yeah, that wouldn't even meet the very minimal standards for factory farming that we have. And then uh, sometimes they also have their gills cut and they bleed to death. Oh, wow. I mean, uh, <laughs> fish 
we were we we were talking about monkfish yesterday, right? And like how how ugly they are <laughs> and how it's hard to care about them. Like it's one thing to care about a cow who is soft and fluffy and makes eye contact with you and you're like, "Ooh, maybe there's something going on in there." Whereas like fish don't have eyelids. They're very alien-looking creatures. <laughs> but it's like listening to these descriptions, I wouldn't even want insects to die that way. And I really don't care for insects. Even though, obviously, I recognize they're a big part of the environment and we'll all die without them. I get it, but you still, yeah. Yeah, and, like, fish can also have really complicated, like, social lives as well and social structures. So even though they they seem a lot different from us, it doesn't mean that they're simpler creatures. There are some for which that might be true, but for many others, they're, like, really require the ability to exist in like social structures that they can't possibly be engaged in. And so you see similar things happening on fish farms um, as they do on like factory farms for pigs or whatever, where they're like cannibalizing each other because they can't have their like normal social structures. Uh, so it's pretty fucked up. And I guess even if you only care about the big mammals, like dolphins and whales, which are super majestic and way more impressive than a fucking monkfish. Sorry, monkfish. But <laughs> but even even if that's all you care about, this the stuff that's happening to these fish, it affects the ecosystems of more impressive animals too. Yeah. Wow, burn on monkfish. <laughs> Honestly, I just can't I think I had a nightmare about it last night. <laughs> you made me look at that picture for so long. <laughs> And then I looked up anglerfish afterwards, and it was even more nightmarish. Yeah, the one fish more hideous than a monkfish. <laughs> Although, listeners, if you know of a fish that's even more hideous, uh, please tweet at Kyla. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, I'll take that. <laughs> it's like looking at a car, like like a train wreck. Like, I can't, like, I'm like, I, can't, I want to look away, but I just can't. <laughs> Yeah, so, I mean, the conclusion that I came to is that, you know, fish farms, generally bad. Wild caught, not as bad, but I don't know, the death's pretty gruesome. So that's a more complicated issue if you're you're okay with killing and just not okay with, like, the really fucked up nightmare that is factory farming. Maybe for you, wild caught seafood is okay then? I don't know, but all of the extra fish that die when the wild caught is happening and all of the extra stuff that's destroyed it it doesn't make yeah, it better it's true. not the same as a hunter going out and catching a deer because he's not burning down the forest as he goes yeah unless it's like if it's harpoon fishing or something like that then it might be yeah but yeah that's a more complicated question so if if you're if you're not sure where you land on on that it could be good to like look into different fishing methods you might reasonably come to the conclusion that some kinds of wild-caught fishing are okay and others you don't think are okay because they've got a lot of bycatch. Um, people have to go with their own thoughts on this, I think. Yeah. The one uh, the one that I do think is okay for fish farming, though, potentially is the farming of bivalves like mussels and oysters. And that's um, that's for welfare reasons. I've already talked about how they, they probably don't feel pain and probably aren't conscious, so... Animal welfare concerns don't really apply to them, but also uh, they the jury's still out on whether they harm whether these like fish farming operations for oysters and mussels harm or help the environment. And um, 
The reason for that is that unlike normal fish farming where you would need to feed the fish and like a bunch of pollution from like fish feces and stuff is produced, bivalves actually clean up the water. Um, they filter it out. So it can actually be a really good way to restore an environment. And there's pretty strong evidence that like a mom and pop, like a really small scale mussel and oyster farm is actually a really good thing for the environment. The only question is like um, when you scale that up to an industrial level, does that then cause um, environmental harms? Yeah, like if this if if our if this episode goes viral and suddenly everybody stops eating fish and only starts eating bivalves, is that going to be a problem? <laughs> yeah, and actually, there's already a move to like uh, create bigger oyster and mussel farms because people are already starting to eat more bivalves, and and also bivalves are like. They can be very environmentally like sensitive. Oysters, for example, have basically no immune system. So like if a disease gets in, they're fucked. <laughs> so <laughs> farming is seen as a way to prevent overfishing in those populations as well. But researchers are are still working on determining whether that's helpful or harmful for the environment or whether like there are some drawbacks that you could mitigate in different ways. Um, it's still unclear. But generally, I think probably fine. All right. Should we talk about human rights? Yeah. The big issue with with human rights in the fishing industry is forced labor. Um, it's a pretty big problem. Um, and one of the sort of one of the countries where it is the biggest problem is Thailand. So Thailand, uh, it's the third largest exporter of seafood in the world. So it's um, seafood industry is worth about seven billion dollars American annually. And it's also really notorious for crewing the fishing boats with uh, slaves that are trafficked from Burma and Cambodia. Whoa. So, yeah. So basically what happens is it's sort of like a form of bonded labor. So trafficked fishermen are sold to fishing boat owners, and then they're told that they have to like work to pay off a debt from like food or whatever, you know, room and board. In addition to being enslaved, the workers on ships like this are exposed to like overwork. They're worked for really long hours, um, violence, torture, and even executions at sea. That's not unheard of. So every year, the U.S. State Department produces a trafficking in persons report. In 2014, that report basically downgraded Thailand to a tier three ranking uh, due to lack of improvements in addressing trafficking. And it revealed that basically the Thai government is ignoring instances of human trafficking and uh, even has sought to punish people that are attempting to bring these abuses to light. So it's really an area where you've got government complicity in slavery. Damn it, Thailand. Be better. Yeah. So Thailand is sort of like the big example of this because its fishing industry is so huge and because the government is complicit in the inaction. But it's also, it, this is a, a, an issue that actually does exist worldwide. So Southeast Asia is the biggest problem region for slavery on fishing vessels, but it occurs in a lot of different places. Some fishing operations in at least 51 countries crew their ships with slave labor. It's kind of a tricky issue to address because of the lack of transparency, right? If you're buying shrimp that is purchased in Thailand or was was harvested in Thailand and you know that, then there's a reasonable chance that it was um, it was fished using slave labor. 
So you could look to avoid that. But even if you do, seafood fraud is such that you may not necessarily know all the time. And actually, even if you're getting like a sustainability label, you don't necessarily know that there's not slave labor involved in that. It's like you're more likely not to have slave labor um, because there are technically standards, but it's really hard to catch. So uh, slavery. So let's talk about sustainability labels, which is one way that we can take power over consuming seafood. Okay. So if you've been sort of concerned about the environmental issues that we talked about in the first part of the episode, buying fish with a sustainability label is a really good idea. There are two sustainability labels that experts agree are the best. Uh, They are also the most well-known, so that sort of works out. Um, And they've got similar names, so it's easy to remember. So (laughs) the uh, first one is the Marine Stewardship Council. And basically, uh, the Marine Stewardship Council, or MSC, was founded in 1996 by the World Wildlife Fund and Unilever. So Unilever, is um, it has been one of the leading companies on seafood sustainability for a very long time. Doesn't mean it's perfect by any means, but it has been much more willing than other companies to get involved with projects like that, like this, and sort of like take a leadership role for the industry. They worked in a partnership with the World Wildlife Fund to get this um, third party certification standard set up. So the MSC basically has three principles that it sets its standards around. So the first one is uh, the condition of the fish populations in the fishery. So Are there enough fish to ensure that the fishery is sustainable? Is it overfished? That's the first principle. The second principle is the impact of the fishery on the wider marine environment. What effect is the fishery having on the immediate area around it, including non-target fish, marine mammals, and seabirds? That's something they have standards around. And then the third principle is the management system itself. This is more boring, but it's basically like, what are the rules and procedures that you need to have in place to meet the first two principles? It's pretty important, even if it is boring. <laughs> yeah. I, I think most boring things are the important things, to be honest. <laughs> Maybe that's why I'm, a, I'm an academic. All right. So the Marine Stewardship Council is uh, accounts for at least 10% of global wild-caught seafood, but this proportion is often a lot higher in developed countries uh, where the demand for certified fish is higher. Um, So in Canada, for example, um, about two thirds of domestic wild catch seafood is now MSC certified. And that actually, it it imposes a bit of a debate because, so in order to get your fishery certified, you have to be willing to pay for third-party audits. You have to have your paperwork all in order. And uh, if you're sort of like a small fishery or a fishery in a develop a developing nation and you have sort of less administrative capacity or less capacity to pay, you might not be able to get a certification, even if what you're doing is relatively sustainable. So some people have referred to this kind of a standard as um, as a way to sort of like on the sly put in place trade barriers uh, that benefit developed countries. And that's like, that's a very real concern to raise, but also given the huge governance gap in seafood, like uh, we talked about this in the first half of the episode, 
there's very little domestic regulation. And also a lot of these, like a lot of fish are caught in international waters. So probably having some kind of standard in absence of nothing, I think is legitimate in this instance. Well, and I mean, it's, it costs money to certify things like it costs money to pay people to go check on this stuff. And unless a government feels like funding that, where else are they gonna be able to afford to run themselves? Yeah, and you'd really need like an international body to be willing to fund it, right? Because I mean, if today, like the governments of Norway and Iceland and Canada and the UK all decided they were going to pay for robust regulatory standards, that would still impose the same developed developing problem, right? Uh, because that would still shift the market away from, you know, fish that's caught, you know, off the coast of Thailand or Vietnam, right? Um, that might not be willing to put in that, put in place those regulatory rules. So on the fishing issue, because overfishing is so catastrophic, I think that that harm outweighs the possible diversion. Um, and it, it potentially offers enough of an incentive that you could have developing country fisheries um, that start to certify. And in fact, that's something that the Marine Stewardship Council is starting to focus on. It's not great at it, but they're, they're trying. So I don't know, it's just kind of a shitty situation, but... I still think getting MSC certified fish is better than not. So the Marine Stewardship Council is generally believed by experts to be the best label. Um, most of the uh, reviews that have been done around it find that it does a pretty good job of dealing with overfishing, a slightly less good job of dealing with the wider marine environment, but still pretty good. And the really the, the big thing that's lacking is um, that they have very little on social standards, right? So if we talk about the human rights, unless they've changed their standards in the last couple of years, last I looked, they had basically just added a thing saying, if you're caught being slavers, like, then we won't certify you. It's <laughs> <laughs> a pretty low bar. Yeah. So it's not great, but also it is kind of a tricky thing to police. So... Uh, seafood's hard to deal with. <laughs> so MSC, you can mostly feel really good about them, but they're not, like, it's not a panacea. It's not going to fix those labor issues. It's not perfect on environmental measures. And you still have to deal with the horrific deaths that fish undertake from being caught. The other one is the Aquaculture Stewardship Council. Very similar name. It's got a similar story, too. It's a lot more recent, though. And we talked about in the first episode how um, factory farming is growing really fast. So that's partly a reflection of, like, this is a newer way to get seafood. So the Aquaculture Stewardship Council was founded in 2010, and it was also founded with the involvement of the World Wildlife Fund. So meant to be pretty similar. And uh, ASC standards focus primarily on environmental issues, so um, they do include things like pollution reduction and protections for, for biodiversity. There are also a couple of social standards, so they're, they don't allow child or forced labor, which is good. Uh, they also require safe working environments, consulting Indigenous and other communities, and um, having regulated 
working hours. So those are all good things. They're noble goals, but I don't know like how how good are they at at, at certifying places that follow those rules. Yeah, so I, it's the best that we have, but the organization Sea Choice uh, basically did a review of ASC and MSC um, and their certifications in Canada. And with MSC, their conclusion was like, yeah, there are some weaknesses, but it's mostly pretty good. And then with ASC, they found um, a lot of bigger problems that there was evidence of non-compliance with the standards and things like that. So I would say this is much better than nothing. You're going to have a less catastrophic harm if you're using ASC certified farmed fish as opposed to not. But I don't think that, frankly, it's good enough to justify getting farmed fish with the possible exception of those bivalves because the harms are already minimal. So the other thing to note with ASC is as far as I was able to tell, there are no animal welfare standards at all. So if that's a concern for you, then I would I would just give farmed fish a pass, except for maybe oysters and mussels. All right. So more broadly, um, what should you think about when you're choosing ethical seafood? I think I know the answer. Is it don't? <laughs> yeah. So for my own part, I believe that seafood is not an ethically justified dietary choice. Um, and for my own personal choice, I would only consider eating bivalves. And in that case, only if the method of either um, farming or sort of wild catching is sustainable and environmentally responsible. Uh, but for... People who want to cast a wider ethical net. Uh, <laughs> ah, <laughs> ah. Oh, but now I'm thinking of those drawstring yeah, nets. Yeah, you and... probably don't want a, want a wider net in seafood because that means more bycatch. But for to say it more clearly, <laughs> for people that do want to include some seafood in their diet, um, here are some things that you should think about. So the first thing is, what is the species? You can... Under this heading, ask things like, is it overfished or not? There's a fairly long list of seafood species that you should never eat because they're overfished. Um, and I'll, listing them all would take forever, but I'll, I'll list some of the more well-known one, well ones. So you should probably never eat bluefin tuna, Atlantic cod, Chilean sea bass, shark, Atlantic halibut, and... My friend, the monkfish. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, can you keep can you keep monkfish at home? I I have I have a sudden urge to go get a fish tank. <laughs> I really like ugly creatures. You know this. You know that if I ever got a cat, it would be a sphinx cat because I just like an underdog. You know, give me an ugly pet. <laughs> give me an ugly pet. There you go. You could do your part to. Uh... Repopulate the monkfish. Uh. We do not condone that. I don't know if you can actually. Are you? I don't yeah, know I. I don't know that it's necessarily a good thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you. You should probably not eat those species under any conditions because they are quite strongly overfished in almost all areas. Well, like in the case of Atlantic cod, you can eat other kinds of cod that aren't Atlantic cod. But you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. There are also a few seafood species that you can feel comfortably generally aren't being overfished. This includes oysters, although there are specific areas where oysters are um, threatened. Mussels, sardines, Pacific halibut, herring, jellyfish, mullet, and pickerel. So if you want to eat like a lot of jellyfish, 
You do you. <laughs> Spread them on Maybe toast. Maybe we'll all be there by 2050. <laughs> <laughs> Spread it on toast. <laughs> Another thing you can ask about the species, if the species that you're looking at isn't one of those never or always species, is what is its uh, trophic level? Or in other words, like where on the food chain is it? And especially, is it an apex predator in its environment? Apex predators play a particularly important role, but in general, um, you should try to eat as close to the bottom of the food chain as you can. That's true generally for all elements of your diet, but um, for seafood specifically as well. Uh, and the last one is uh, that might matter to you is, does the species feel pain or how intelligent is it or whatever sort of characteristics might be of value to you in determining uh, animal cruelty issues? The second thing you might want to think about when you're choosing ethical fish is what was the fishing or farming method? So things like how much bycatch was produced, does it kill coral or otherwise destroy ecosystems, how polluting is it, how cruel is this method compared to others? So if you're looking at different fishing methods, the best sort of catch methods from a sustainability perspective are hook and line fishing, harpoons and scuba, pots and traps, and purse scenes. Is is there a way to know, though, like how something was caught? Sometimes it will say. The best way to know is to choose a sustainability label. <laughs> um, <laughs> Fair enough. Otherwise, it's pretty hard. But you can also, I, I'm going to talk about some tools at the end. And uh, some of those online tools will tell you, like, for this species, they're usually caught in this way. They usually also give you a recommendation. So you don't even really need to think about it that much. You just look at whether it's like, recommend, don't recommend, or like red, yellow, or green, depending on the method. But yeah, know that different catching methods can be more or less destructive to the environment. And so eating the same species, depending on how it's caught, can make a big difference. Uh, and you should always avoid seafood that's caught with drift nets, which are also called walls of death. <laughs> cool. Some metal name. Sounds really yeah. scary. <laughs> Uh, seafood that's caught with dynamite and cyanide, don't eat it. Yeah, sure. Yeah. For multiple reasons. <laughs> um, and then bottom trawling. You don't want to be eating fish that is caught that way either. The next thing you can think about is location. Questions to ask under that are things like, how far does the seafood have to travel to get to me? And how did it travel? So if you're going to a really pricey tasting menu and you're getting seafood there that is not from your area... It was probably shipped through air freight to you, and that's not good. Yeah, because that's the only way to keep it fresh. Yeah. If you're if you're not, like, I mean, that's like a super fancy restaurant thing. Most of the time, fish isn't air shipped, but uh, that's a thing to keep into account. The brand you can also think about as well. So is it a company that... Um, the company that sold it, is it a leader or a laggard? Is it participating in things like the Marine Stewardship Council or is it not? Because that's sort of how you vote with your dollars a little bit. And then the last thing, uh, is it certified? Does it have Marine Stewardship Council or um, Aquaculture Stewardship Council certification? And uh, if it doesn't, do you really know anything about where the seafood came from? Probably not. You might, like if you're if you're getting something that was caught at a fishery that's like, right next to you? Maybe, but usually not. Okay, um, so keeping those things in mind, how do you go about choosing ethical seafood? 
If you want to be a selective omnivore, uh, Terrace Gresco's Bottom Feeder offers a really good rule of thumb that I want to share. And it's basically just eat as close to the bottom of the food chain as possible. That's what I was thinking when I grabbed my anchovies. But then I... Love it. And I was like, oh, these were shipped from Spain. Whoops. Probably not great. (laughs) (laughs) But I was trying. (laughs) You were trying. You crushed it. Yeah. So um, Bottom Feeder also recommends that you avoid cheap seafood because that probably means it was farmed. Avoid any fish that's traveled a far away. Avoid long-lived predator fish. So... Uh, Things like Chilean sea bass, sharks, tuna, swordfish. Avoid farmed shrimp, tuna, salmon, or any other carnivorous fish because they have to be fed fish meal and that has a bunch of environmental harms. Man, I really messed up the challenge on this one. I'll try harder on our next one. (laughs) Well, I don't know. I don't know that your, your salmon was farmed necessarily. No, it was wild caught locally and like packaged locally, but it's still an apex predator. Like, and I knew that I'd already done the anchovies. So <laughs> but I was like, salmon's okay. Cause there's lots of it. <sighs> <laughs> yeah. And if you're, um, if you're buying farmed salmon, cod or trout, uh, bottom feeder recommends opting for organically farmed ones. The book was written before the ASC came out. So you can think of that sort of as like an either or, if if you can't find ASC certified, try to get organic. They I think they have like bigger space requirements for the fish. And that's the reason that he cited. And then the last one that he recommends is opting for seafood that's um at the lowest end of the food chain. So that's why his book's called Bottom Feeder. <laughs> uh yeah, so in addition to those kinds of considerations, there are a couple of useful tools that can help you to pick ethical seafood because I recognize it's like Super overwhelming. You've gotten a lot of information. So the first one is uh, Sea Choice. It's the organization that did that review of MSC and ASC. They're a really good place to go if you want to get informed about sustainable seafood. They've got lots and lots of really great resources. There are also two really useful consumer guides. So the first one is OceanWise. So OceanWise classifies seafood as either recommended or not recommended. The full list uh, from OceanWise is super overwhelming, but you can also just go to their website and search it pretty easily. So if you have um, a couple of species in mind that you want to decide between, OceanWise, their website can be a really good resource. And Sea Choice actually ranked OceanWise's resources as the best for choosing ethical seafood. So you can feel good about them. Yay, there was an OceanWise stamp on my salmon, so it wasn't a total loss. <laughs> Thank you for the virtual <laughs> high five that you just gave me. <laughs> yeah, the other one that you could look at is Seafood Watch. Um, their website has kind of a similar setup. Um, you can use that to search species as best choice, good alternatives, or avoid. Um, so it'll be in that like red, yellow, or green category. They also have a wallet card that I don't think they've updated since 2011. So that's why I didn't put it in my research notes. But it's sort of like easy because it's a small size and it's easy to carry around with you. My only drawback to that is because we're overfishing so quickly, having it be out of date by a decade seems to me to be a really big problem. Yeah. So I'd recommend sticking with the website for them or for OceanWise if you're trying to decide. Yeah. So that that's it. That's seafood. <sighs> How do you feel? I feel like I'm going to be vegan by the end of this year. <laughs> <laughs> 
Just because I can't, I can't unlearn this stuff now. <laughs> hey, maybe we'll find out that eating insects is super great and you'll go to like an all grasshopper diet. Man, I made a joke about that earlier though. And then you were like, but they feel pain. And I was like, oh no, you're right. They do, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it's fine. I, I should be vegan. It's way better for the environment and animals and just literally everything. But. I just, oh man, I like salmon. That's a dumb argument, though. So I'm just gonna. Well, I mean, it is and it isn't, right? Like, uh, like there is something like super ingrained and like primal about the taste of meat. We're like cued to like it. So it is genuinely really difficult, even if you've made like the rational choice that you want. Rational meaning, like, even if you've reasoned to your own way, not to necessarily say that the only ethical choice is to be vegan. I'm not <laughs> claiming that. Uh, don't at me. Um, but even if you've come to that decision from, like, a perspective of reasoning, you might find it really hard to live up to because of these sort of, like, primal instincts that we have. And that is understandable, especially in a pandemic where we're all just trying to live, you know? All right. Well, that's it for this week. I hope people have learned something. I did. I learned that I'm going to be eating less fish. <laughs> <laughs> but more oysters and mussels, maybe. Who knows? Actually, yeah. Do you know what? I think I will do that. I think that if I ever, if I crave seafood, I think I might do that. So that is a solution that I approve of. If anyone else has any suggestions or you want to talk to us about any of this, you can add us on Twitter at Pullback Podcast. Uh, we, you can also go to our website for all of the amazing research notes that Kristen does. Like, they're incredible, and everyone should definitely check those Aww. out. And our call to action, I think, should just be the same as our last episode, which is, like, write to your MP. We really need government guidance on fishing, because it's just, like, it all takes place in international waters, and there's not a lot we can do about that, so... Yeah. And I guess maybe another call to action is uh, go to Sea Choice's website and get a little more informed. Yeah. All right. Awesome. Thanks for listening, guys. We'll catch you on the next episode. We talked about this a little bit in the Christmas episode, but turkeys are mean and I don't feel as bad about eating them. Did I tell you there was a power outage in our neighborhood caused by a wild turkey? What? Which, yeah, it's pretty, like, Canada's quaint kind of news story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, apparently wild turkey is, like, a real thing here in Ottawa, <laughs> capital city of Canada. <laughs>